Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello and welcome back to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. And this is our last episode of 2022. Wow. Time yeah. Does it not? It does. So happy new year. Happy new years to you too. Trey, what are we talking about today? 1984. And we split this into two episodes, didn't we? Correct. Because so much went down in 84. It was think there's going to be some longer stories in this one. Well, and I don't know about you, but I was really having trouble limiting it to 10 songs from 1984. Even limiting it down to 20 was really a challenge for me. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I brought it up and looked and I was like, oh, no, there's so much I like in here. It was such a pivotal year for music. It just, you know, Prince blew up. Duran Duran had their best year ever. Mm hmm. And, you know, again, alternative music began to climb more and more into, you know, REM kind of started getting themselves out there. So I think what we're going to do then, Trey, is we're going to split 1984 into two episodes. Is that correct? I think that would be best. So today we're going to talk about songs that were released in the first half of 1984 from January through the end of June. Mm hmm. And then our first episode of the new year, Trey, we'll do July through December. Correct. Awesome. Well, do you want to start us off then, Trey? Up first, we have Wrapped Around Your Finger by the Police. album synchronicity but we did determine that in the u.s wrapped around your finger was released as a single in january 1984 correct i believe it was the last single off of the album was it not oh i don't know it may very well have been i think it was such a haunting haunting song the synthesizers in this were just always just i don't know the word i need there touched me in some weird way it is really an underrated song. And, you know, I think um, Andy Summers' guitar is really underrated in this one, too. For sure. the uh, That whole album was just fantastic. And it seems like it's so almost forgotten these days. That's one of the best albums of the 80s. 
And then as is so often the case, there was so much creative tension between the three members of the band that uh, they broke up shortly after that. Mm -hmm. And another artist that you picked on this episode actually opened this tour. Oh, and what artist was that? The Go-Go's. Oh, oh, we'll have to talk about that then. I think that covers it for that one. Okay. Well, the first song I picked, Trey, is from one of my favorite bands of the 80s. We've talked about them a few times already, and that's the Eurythmics. And the song I chose was Here Comes the Rain Again. This was our second single, was it not? It was the first single off of the album Touch in the USA, but it was the third single off the album in Britain, if that makes any sense. So for us here in the States, this was the lead single. Okay. And it did reach number four on the Billboard Hot 100. And I've talked a lot about the Eurythmics and especially Annie Lennox and what an influence that I think she's been on me and beauty and gender roles and everything. So rather than repeat myself, I urge our listeners to go back and listen to our episode on the rock and roll hall of fame and also our episode on 1983. Cause we talk quite a bit about that. You know, I'm surprised there's not a documentary about her or something out there yet. Cause she, like you said, was amazing in what she did. I suppose it's probably only a matter of time. Right. I mean, I would love to see like a, a, a biopic of the Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart story. That would be amazing, I think. Well, he, you know, you could do one on him himself from all his production and things he's done over the years. And he's just, you know, he's an amazing talent, too. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, you know, I, when this song was out, I could not stand it. Really? How come? I don't know. I was, you know, what, 13, 14 and just wasn't grabbing me. Nowadays, I love it. But back then, I was like, this is not me. Really? It, See, that surprises me. I think it took me getting more into alternative music to kind of look back at some of the things from the past and go, you know, now I see where this was going. I, I, this is much better than I, I thought it was at first. Yeah, because you're usually such a big fan of the synths. Right, right. And Eurythmics were such pioneers in that area. Mm -hmm. So, okay, tell me uh, what you chose next, Trey. We are at Self Control by Laura Branigan. against 
This was, you know, this was such a big song. It was everywhere that spring. And it, it, it's just one of those songs that always got me going. That's all I can say about it. Yeah, I was a little surprised to see this on your list because I wouldn't have guessed you were a Laura Branigan fan. And she was everywhere for a few years there. I really like this one because it's got a very kind of primal undercurrent to it, you know? Definitely very catchy, uh, very kind of cool guitar riff to it. Very sad that she died so young. I was about to bring that up myself. It was a brain tumor, was it not? Uh, brain aneurysm, yeah. Yeah, so she died in 2004. She was only 52. Right, pretty so young. Yeah. And she was still pretty active in music. Yeah, she was, she was. Uh, she didn't really have any major hits to speak of in that latter part of her career, at least nothing that really charted. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she was still recording and creating up to almost the end i mean that's admirable i think she definitely had herself a following out there oh yeah i remember hearing about it this was back when mtv and vh1 were barely hanging on to music and coming home from work one night seeing this on mtv news but i can remember being surprised they even mentioned her but i was like wow what did she mm -hmm. die oh well, so self-control like Here Comes the Rain Again reached number four on the U.S. billboard charts. I don't know. Anything else we want to say about Laura Branigan? I think we about covered it. All right. Well, next song for me is It's My Life by Talk Talk. Let's listen. So that was written by Mark Hollis and Tim Freeze Green, and it was released as the first single off of the band's second album. It did make the American top 40, peaking at number 31. And I think maybe many of our listeners might know it better because Gwen Stefani covered it. Which actually wasn't a bad song. No, it, it really wasn't. I did not hate the cover. It took me by surprise the first time uh, I heard it on the radio because it was very, very true to the original. So Talk Talk, of course, being part of the new romantic movement, you know, same as like Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, Culture Club, maybe a little bit less known in the U.S. than they were overseas, but uh, really, really underrated band. Oh, for sure. Mark Hollis is an incredible talent yeah here's another one that went too soon so he passed away of cancer in 2019 yeah, that was a very sad loss it's one of those things where i put it on facebook and nobody i don't think anybody realized who he was yeah i mean i knew who he was from mtv 
I mean, and that's probably true of most of these musicians that we're talking about today, but he really was an amazing songwriter. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was covered by somebody like Gwen Stefani, I think just kind of underscores that. They've got a song that I won't be able to talk about it till 86, but they, they did one of my favorite songs of all time. Nice what you make it. I don't think I know that one. Oh man, that is how can you not know that song, Lori? Hmm, maybe I'd know it if I heard it. You probably would. Living up there and I I'm sure it was all over the radio there. Okay. What's next for you, Trey? Up next we have Eyes Without a Face by Billy Idol, which to me this is his best song. Hmm. A lot of people give me crap for that. This this is the best thing he ever did. Oh, let's listen. I'm not sure if you know or a lot of other people know this was actually inspired by a very bizarre French 1959 horror movie. I actually did. Yes. Tell me. Tell me about it. Have you ever seen the movie? I haven't. Have you? Yes. A couple of times. It's uh, I couldn't even begin to explain it in the time we have. It's just something you, you have to. It's one of those movies you need to see before you die. It's one of those. So I do know that it's about a plastic surgeon gone mad and his daughter has been in a car accident. Mm -hmm. And so he is basically become a serial killer and he's murdering people for parts of their faces to help restore his daughter. And by the end of the movie, the only part of her face that is her own is her eyes. Pretty much. That's my understanding. I, again, haven't seen it. That's a fantastic rundown of the basis of it, but you you have no idea how bizarre this movie is. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of the nuance of it, for sure. First time I saw it, I could not believe it was filmed in 1959. Well, the fact that it's French, I think, says something, because, you know, French avant-garde film was kind of uh, hitting a stride. Yeah. The special effects in it don't look... Oh. 1959. I mean, you're watching the thing going, wait a minute, when was this made? You know, I'll, now I'll have to check it out. So do you know anything about the song itself? Not a much. I know that's Perry Lister on background vocals, is it not? Yes, it is. That's Perry Lister. She's probably best known as the backup dancer in a lot of his videos, that gorgeous blonde woman. Mm-hmm. She's also been in a few Duran Duran videos. Mm-hmm. She was Billy's on again, off again, romantic partner for many years. And she's singing the part Les Yeux Sans Visage in the yep. background. Yeah. They're still somewhat involved, aren't they? I, they may be. I think they have a child together, don't they? They, they have a daughter. Yeah. 
I did finally, uh, I did see, I've seen him a couple times in concert actually, but the first time I saw him was I think in like, gosh, what year did he play Lollapalooza? Was it like 2002 or 2003? And, um, then I caught him again at Riot Fest, um, maybe six or seven years ago, but still got it, man. He's still got it. I saw him at 87 and I just realized I have an interesting story about him. Ooh. It was when he toured with the Colt in 1987, and the Colt was so drunk they could hardly play. When Billy Idol came out, I believe he had been drinking too. They had these two little ramps on either side of the stage, and he appeared on top of one of them. As you know, his intro and the band came out, and started playing, and he fell completely down one of them as he was trying to run out into the front and start singing. Hmm. Smacked his head open pretty good, but he kept right going, jumped Ooh. right up, sort of rolled out of the fall ran up, grabbed his mic, and just laid into the song, you know, just went through the first song. I think it was Moni Moni. Mm-hmm. And at the song ended, he goes, hold on, hold on a second. I split me head open. Let me make sure I'm all right. And he runs off and comes back, a few, you know, 50 seconds later with a little Band-Aid stuck on his head. And he goes, right, I'm all right. Let's go. And they, the show kept going. Wow. Consummate performer there, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Show must go on. Right. Wow. And then you mentioned Moni Moni. That song was banned from our school dances. Really? By the nuns. Yeah. Well, because of the chant. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So so there was a chant that we used to do with it that was not appropriate for grade school. <laughs> so this one, Trey, like two of the other songs we've talked about so far, peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. Maybe there's some sort of synchronicity going on, going there. 84, number four. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, my next song probably, strictly speaking, is not considered alternative, but it was still such a good song. That was Don't Answer Me by the Alan Parsons Project. Now let's listen a little bit. So, Trey, you told me you'd never heard this one before. Is that right? Well, I went and looked it up and I had. Oh, okay. All right. But it, it didn't immediately didn't immediately come to mind, huh? I you remember the TV show Night Flight? Yes. They used to play the video. Oh, the video is really well done. Right, right. It was actually nominated for most experimental video at the first ever 1984 MTV Video Music Awards, but it lost out to Rocket by Herbie Hancock. I remember right seeing on the news Rocket winning that. That was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a big deal. But uh, Alan Parsons Project, most people, I think, would consider them prog rock. You know, very kind of synth-heavy, long, epic songs. And I do actually like a lot of their their older stuff. This song was kind of a deviation from them. It really 
almost ends up being a very Phil Spector inspired kind of fifties, you know, doo-wop kind of song, but it's, it's catchy and the video especially super, super memorable. So that's why I chose to include it here. It's a cool song and I don't feel they're out of place in here. They were definitely kind of an under the radar sort of band. So I checked out a couple of other songs and I knew more than a few of them. I was like, okay, I know who these guys are. He was a famous producer. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of stuff along that lines. And then composed a song for, was it ABC Sports or something like that? When the Chicago Bulls take to the court, they play Serious by the Alan Parsons Project. Apparently they use that a time or two in that agony of defeat that they would run sometimes. People, you know, making mistakes and getting their butts tore up and what have you. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, yeah, and, you know, uh, The Eye in the Sky, that was another one they did that was really big. I knew that one. That was just, just before this, right? Yes, yes, it was right around the same time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, worthy inclusion, I think, in uh, Best of 1984. Indeed it is. Up next, we have Cindy Lauper and her 1984 hit, Time After Time, which is... Again, her best song, if you ask me, though I like everything she's done. Sometimes you picture me, I'm walking too far ahead. You're calling to me, I can't hear what you've said. Then you say, Go slow, I fall behind. The second if you're lost, you can look and you will find me Time after time If you fall, I will catch you, I'll be waiting Time after time If you're lost, you can look and you will find me Time after time If you fall, I will catch you, I'll be The song is named for the 1980, 19, I'm sorry, 1979 movie, Time After Time. You're not familiar with it? Was that the one with H.P. Lovecraft chasing Jack the Ripper? H.G. Wells. Oh, yes. H.G. Wells. Duh, the time machine. Not H.P. Lovecraft. I do remember that. I remember... But really, the, the song was named after the movie? I didn't know that. They were working on the song, and the, the name of the guy slipped my mind. Whoever was helping her write it and co-produce it and all. Oh, that's Rob Hyman. He's uh, from the Hooters. Well, I know Rob Hyman also sings backing vocals well, on the they, song. They wrote most of that album. Him and Eric, was, was, I don't know how you say his last name, from the Hooters. Okay, Rob Hyman and Cindy were working on the song and did not yet have a title for the song. Rob was looking through like a TV guide and saw the movie Time After Time was coming on TV and thought that would be a great title for the song. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I'm not sure either one of them had ever seen the movie at the time, but. Because it definitely it lyrically doesn't relate to the movie at all. Just the title. No, not at all. And that's actually one of my all time favorite movies. Really? Yeah, so at the dawn of the internet, when I found out about that, I was like, "This, how can you make a great song better? You know, oh. do it. Oh, you know, I think one of the things that makes this song so good 
it can be interpreted in so many different ways. You know, it could be someone singing to her lover. It could be a parent singing to a child. It could be a child singing to a parent, you know, or, you know, to somebody that you share that kind of close bond with, you know what I mean? And I think that that's what makes this such a timeless song. And I always love the video. Oh, the video makes me cry. With her in the little trailer and, you know. Yeah. She's going to sleep with her little ceramic dog. Yeah. Well, and then she actually did cry on the, the train in that one scene. That Those were actual tears, and that was not something that was planned. There's a live version, I think, from like 2016, where she's singing it. And she breaks down and starts crying in the middle of the song. And she has to yeah, kind of go, hold on a second, and then keep going. I wonder who she's thinking of when she sings it. I wonder if it's her mother. I don't know. Her mother was very much alive when this was written. Uh, yeah. Who I knows? don't know. I don't know. Doesn't seem she's ever said. Yeah. But yes, yeah, Cindy has just gone on to become. I mean, who who would have thought when we first saw her in the '80s? Who would have thought that in 2022 she would still be relevant? I mean, she's become an icon for the queer community. Everybody loves her. I love her to death. Oh, she's she's amazing. We saw her in concert a few years ago and she played all country songs. I want to see her. I'm, hopefully I can before. Something else I want to say, where, on, where in the world is her fountain of youth? Right? Oh, she does not age. What the hell, man? And, you know, while we're on the subject, last night I was watching, um, they did a Grammy salute to the music of Paul Simon. Susanna Hoffs does not age oh yeah she she looks exactly the same as she did she posted a picture of herself on facebook back here two or three weeks ago wearing a skimpy little black dress and i was just like lady how you you know doing this there must be some kind of like bathing in virgin blood or something you know elizabeth bathory kind of thing her skin is uh, yeah. So it's, so it's not doing drugs and not smoking and not drinking heavy is really, I think, what it is with these. Yeah. People. Well, so Susanna and Cindy, both you look fantastic. We love you. Maybe they'll hear this and write us a thank you letter. That'd be so cool. Or send me their beauty secrets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, next up is a song that we have talked about once before, and that is The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. This was the lead single off their album, Ocean Rain. We talked about it 
It's part of our Halloween episode, actually. I think it's probably best known to a lot of people for being on the soundtrack from the film Donnie Darko. I like that movie. I don't know about you. What's that? I liked that movie. I don't know. Oh, I love that movie. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. My younger mm. sister told me, when did that movie come out? About 03, 02? 2001. I heard of this movie because my younger sister told me, she said, I watched this movie and it has all this weird, that weird music you like in it. And I was like, what is it called? And she told me and I checked it out. And I was like, this is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, I think a lot of people didn't get it because there's like some time paradoxes and a few other things going on. And it really requires a certain amount of thought. I'm still not sure I get it. Okay, well, (laughs) that should be a topic for another episode. We should just do an entire episode on the time paradox of Donnie Darko. He saved his family, right? He did. That's the that's the gist I got of what it was all supposed to mean. He sacrificed himself. I don't know. Yeah, I doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Why? What do you mean? Remember the Duran Duran song "Sparkle Motion" about dancing to Notorious. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, sparkle motion. What, I what are you talking you were about? I thought you going to get that right off. You were supposed to roll oh, with that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't remember the name of the dance troupe. What kind of Duran Duran fan are you really if you don't know that? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> All right. Change the subject. What's next, Trey? We have No More Words by Berlin. Speaking of people who don't age, Terry Nunn. Terry Nunn has not aged. I believe she's about 62 now, looking like she's 24. I don't know how, what, what is it? Well, I don't know. I tell you, it's a shame that she's playing for Trump rallies. I didn't care for that either, but I'm going to go with what she said. And she says her management booked it and she didn't really know until she got there. Hmm. It would have cost her some money to get out of actually doing it. Hmm. So I don't know who to, I don't know. All right. Well, the song, <laughs> the song is fantastic. And I didn't realize this was produced by Giorgio Moroder yes. along with Richie Zito. Yes. Everything Giorgio Moroder. I, I can't say, ah! Don't worry. I have trouble with that one too. That everything Italian guy that produced all that great <laughs> disco music. Let's call it that. Yes. Everything that Giorgio Moroder. Giorgio. Everything that Giorgio. <laughs> everything that Giorgio touched turned to gold in the 80s he's fantastic oh absolutely this song only peaked at number 23 in the u.s though 
This is another example of where I knew the song well, but had never, ever seen the video. Oh. Really, until YouTube came to be. Really? We didn't have MTV where I lived, and this this wasn't getting on night tracks or Friday night videos, really. Not that I can recall. I, the first exposure I got to it was on MTV, so I do associate it with the video, and it was very Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. Yeah. I think that's what they were going for. Great song, great album, great band. Yeah. She's got a great voice, and I, ooh, boy, I was fond of her when I was about 13. Yeah. She almost played Princess Leia. Really? She auditioned for the role, yes. I didn't know that. She was pretty young, and they found out, and they were like, not. So you say she's pretty young. She was younger than Carrie Fisher? Mm-hmm. Carrie oh, wow. Fisher was like 19. Okay. Terry was like, I, I'm not real sure, 14 or 15. I got nothing to add at this point. That, I really that don't. Would have to, I wonder if that bothers her. Hmm. Well. We know this band. We know this band. Yes. The, well. next, the next song, uh, which I chose. New Moon on Monday by Duran Duran. You got me excellent song i do really like this song and i do like the video uh there's like something like six or seven different versions of the video but it's still fun to watch it has some semblance of a plot where the the boys i guess are kind of uh fomenting rebellion and uh being subversive against an oppressive regime kind of fun the song did peak at number 10 on the U.S. Billboard charts, so this was a top 10 hit. Yeah, this is this is one that I still listen to. It's still, it's very timeless. It does not sound dated to me. You know, what I didn't realize is the sound effects during the middle eight that I, I think a lot of people assumed were fireworks, it's actually paper ripping. Really? really? Yeah, yeah. Nick Rhodes has said it's uh, tearing paper. I thought it was some sort of drum. I thought it was a drum machine. Yeah, no, it was like, like the effects of tearing paper. And then I, you know, like, shh. I thought they were, the 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 resistance was marching with their drums or something. There you go. There you go. You know, I always, have you ever seen the longer version of this video? Yes. Yes, I have. The, the longer version, it has the, what, the French theater in the beginning and. Yeah. And yeah, I know I know the one you're talking about. And like in some versions of the video, the the dark haired girl is like, well, in all of them, she's like a love interest. But in some of them, she betrays the band. And then another one, she, you know, is with the band. And it's yeah. <laughs> and there's how many different mixes of this song are there? 
That's a good question. I do not know. I like the one that's about seven minutes long. Okay. It's not really that much different than the single mix. It just goes on a bit longer. Okay. You know that one? <laughs> I, I'm sure I've got it. I've got like, yeah. when I was searching my uh, my collection, I just searched for New Moon on Monday and I got like a page of versions <laughs> in, on my drive. Um, this and of like, course, uh-huh. This is actually one of my favorites by them too. This is a great song. It it really is. It's a really good one. I love the synth notes. It's just very kind of like jingly, kind of upbeat. Catchy. Definitely. And uh, of course, you know, everybody to this day still makes fun of the band for their horrible dancing at the end of the video. <laughs> I forgot about that. Especially Nick. I think Nick's dancing is probably the worst out of all of them. Have they been drinking or something? I just think that they just are not used to dancing. <laughs> well, they did a good job of dancing on stage. I, you know. Well, the only one that ever really danced on stage was Simon. Well, John had some moves and so did Andy. And Nick was back there grooving behind his keyboards. He he was he was in it. Yeah. So I don't know. They maybe just were having an off day or maybe they just weren't feeling it. I mean, I kind of got the feeling from reading some of the uh, the boys memoirs, especially Andy's, that they really weren't feeling it. They really were not. Uh, the, this this whole idea, you know, the French resistance or whatever, the underground they just were not not on board with it. And it sounds like that they were kind of half-assing it a little bit, you know? So management won that argument, basically? That's the impression that I got. Yeah. I, you know, it, it, there's more than one side to every story. So who can say? All right. Trey, what's up next for you? Magic by the Cars. It's probably their best album, Heartbeat City, in my opinion, anyways. Oh, see, I have to disagree with you there. I'm going to have to go with Candio. <sighs> I like their older stuff better. I like everything they did. I was definitely a big fan of these guys and was, you know, would purchase everything they put out. And this, this, I don't know, this album is just moment in time type of album. From, oh, yeah. You know, and this song was everywhere, April of 84 right around my birthday so okay so you've got some good associations with it. right then. right right oh. my 14th birthday this was a hit duran duran was everywhere great song great video kind of a bit of a kooky video kooky i think describes most of their videos yeah they were definitely they were one of those groundbreakers in music videos too oh yeah absolutely but as far as technology but just themselves being in odd situations 
one of their other videos off of this album, Hello Again, that's on this album, right? Right. That video was actually directed by Andy Warhol. Really? I did not know. Yes. That. And he's in the video. Is he? Yeah. Go back and watch. I'm going to have to. But anyway, back to magic. So I do know it was written by Rick Ocasek and it was produced by Mutt Lang. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Very famous record producer, probably best known for working with Def Leppard. Yep. And the song did go to number 12 here in the USA. All right. Anything else about the cars? I think that about covers that one. Okay. So I'm excited for this next one. I love the Go-Go's. And actually, this is my favorite Go-Go song. This is Head Over Heels. Great, great song. You know, it was a bit of a lackluster album, though. So right around this time that they recorded this, there were starting to be some fractures in the Mm -hmm. band. Kathy Valentine has written in her memoir that she was really spiraling very heavily into drug use. And so there was kind of like this fracture within the band. Whenever you have like, two two groups of people that are supposed to be collaborating and instead they're competing against each other it ends up ending really badly and and i think that's kind of what happened here i think kathy was feeling marginalized and pushed out charlotte was starting to work on some collaborations with belinda and some of those would eventually end up on belinda's solo album and things were just uh, uh, starting to come apart. I think uh, i think it had run their course there i absolutely love this song though and Kathy Valentine's bass line on this song is my top five bass lines of all time. It's a wonderfully put together song and just one of their best songs for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you had mentioned earlier, Trey, that the Go-Go's had opened for the police at one point. Mm -hmm. And that was when they were touring their first album. They, uh, They toured with the police twice. Okay. Well, when they were touring their first album with the police, the Go-Go's actually knocked the police out of the number one spot for the singles. And so Mm -hmm. Sting went into the girls' dressing room with a bottle of champagne to congratulate them, which I thought was really, really classy. There's an infamous sort of backstage video shot of the Go-Go's on this tour that's... I don't know if you've ever seen that or not, but I've heard of its existence. I have not actually seen it. It's on YouTube and it's not as bad as it gets made out to be, but it's, it's pretty funny. Girls behaving badly. Well, they, they weren't behaving badly, but they had, they had indulged a little that evening. Let's put it that way. Okay. The Go-Go's also have a connection to another band that I'm going to talk about later in this episode. And that is Madness. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to madness. So you've seen what happened, haven't you? With what? What's his face passed away? 
Which one? Oh, uh, Terry Hall? Yeah. Oh, that's worth mentioning, too. Oh, uh, I didn't even... He wrote that, didn't he? Yeah. yeah so, right. so Terry Hall and Jane Wydlin wrote the song, right. Our Lips Are Sealed, together. Now, it really kind of seems like it was more Jane. The lyrics came from Terry from like a love letter or something that he had written. But they share a writing credit on that because when they were touring in the UK as part of the two-tone tour, they kind of hooked up romantically, Jane and, and Terry. And so this was them speaking to each other about their relationship, you know, pay no mind to what they say. Because, you know, people are talking about us. You know how I found out about this? What? Pop-up video. Oh, okay. All right. I don't remember how I found out about it. I really don't. But uh, well, yeah. You, so you knew about it when it happened. But <laughs> yeah. So Terry Hall, of course, was the lead singer of the specials. And then later on, Fun Boy 3 and Colorfield. And he did just pass away very recently after a short bout of liver cancer. Yep. Very sad loss. Yes. All right. So talk to me about your next song, Trey. Up next, we have the Thompson Twins with You Take Me Up. I've mentioned before I was a pretty big fan of the Thompson twins back then they were just so different to me and you know I think I told you Trey I had never heard this song before yeah never heard this song before I wouldn't go so far as to call it a hit it was it was the third of the fourth single off the end of the gap album and uh, you know it, it got moderate airplay I'd say and I'm listening to it and I'm hearing the harmonica and I'm like this is Thompson twins mm-hmm Really? Great song. Okay, sure. You have to play the album version, which runs about six minutes. And it's a little different than the version they remixed and put out as a single. Okay. I don't know. Again, it's that period in time. It was a really happy time. Fun time to be alive. You know, great song. Okay. Well, so my next song, Trey, is a band from your neck of the woods. And that would be R.E.M. Yes. So I chose South Central Rain. I'm sorry by REM. Did you never call? I waited for your calls. Rivers of suggestion were driving me away. The trees were thin. The cities wash away. Oh, 
great song. And this was, you know, I could, we could get a whole show out of me talking about R.E.M. and growing up in Georgia. So you go first. Well, this is where I think R.E.M. really started to kind of come into their own as songwriters and performers. And this is like the kind of just very powerful, melodious songwriting that we've come to expect from them. It's just a a, a beautiful, touching song. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what was it like growing up so close to R.E.M.? It was they had actually played in Augusta, which I had no idea of. For those of you that have read any of the little books that are out there about them, about their early years, they were actually involved in a car accident on a highway exit, which is just down the road from here one night here in Augusta. And uh, obviously I was way too young to know what was going on. Then it happened in like 81, but you know, they, I was getting into alternative music and they were from Athens, which is an hour and 15 minutes from me. And I just thought that was fantastic. I had heard of the B-52s at the time, but I had no idea they were from Athens. You know, there's a fair a fair argument I've seen that Athens was one of the things that helped put alternative music on the map, along with Los Angeles. And, you know, they definitely had a, a, a hand deep in that, you know, that whole thing. There was a lot of, lot of local bands up there back then. Yeah. Uh, but it was just, like I said, it was great. They were from right near me and they were an alternative rock band and I just loved them. I loved them. They were, you know, from here. So I didn't know anybody else like me still at this point in time. And I felt like, you know, with them being from right there, it was just wonderful. Yeah. Well, so I kind of have a little bit of a segue to our next song. Right around, boy, a little bit later than this, maybe about 86 or so. I was uh, visiting a friend and I was in a little town called Plano, Illinois. And Plano is just at the time, I mean, I think they had like a bar with like a pool table. And at the time, I mean, it was nothing. There was a, the, uh, like a factory warehouse and that was about it. I mean, it's obviously changed a lot since then, but, uh, I was wearing a t-shirt, uh, a cure t-shirt. And this girl about my age comes up to me and goes, the cure, what's that? And I said, oh, they're a new wave band. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, like REM. And that's the first time I'd ever heard anybody utter the cure and REM in the same breath. Because I would almost, I mean, I, I guess they could both be considered new wave or alternative. But I mean, they're really, you couldn't get two more diametrically opposed bands, could you? Well, I mean, you know, it was about a year later when I found The Cure. And at that point in time, I just would have seen them similar alternative rock bands or college music, as they were calling it then. Though I did think The Cure were more of a new wave band than R.E.M. was, but I didn't really see much difference either. Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) remember, you, you were in very different surroundings than I was. You had a much bigger world for all this stuff than me down here in little old small town Georgia. Well, you picked a song by The Cure, so why don't you tell us about it? Up next, we have Piggy in the Mirror off of their 1984 album, The Top, which I absolutely hated. Oh, 
Okay, so I, I got into the cure in fall of 85, and into 86, I started going around and finding everything I could find by them, and I got the album The Top, and it went right over my head. I, it didn't really, you know, I had no idea what a goth band really is or anything at this point in time, and it, this album was very clearly heavily inspired by drugs, which also went completely over my head at that age. And I did. I really, particularly, didn't like this song. This was one of the songs on the album that I just thought was ridiculous. So let's flash forward to 1989, and I went and saw him on the Prayer Tour in Atlanta, and seeing them live for the first time. And this was like the fourth song they played in the night, and it completely changed my view on this album. Hmm. You know, over the course of the next few weeks, when I got home, it was just full on loving the Cure mode and played every album they had front to back I, I gained a new respect for this album okay well you know I consider myself like a moderate Cure fan I right. mean I'm not not to the extreme that you are mm -hmm. I did not even have this album in my collection when you put this song in and I'm going through and I I didn't know the song you know it's like there's this little gap in my collection right where this album should be so for whatever reason this one just hasn't crossed my my radar well what did you think of it when you listened to it um i'd have to listen to it a little bit more i think to you know like a really good deep listen i i think especially for songs by the cure i think that's the only way to really appreciate them is to just you know put them on on the headphones and just kind of completely immerse yourself you know it's not something that you can listen to just as background music you know it it really requires that kind of immersive experience, I think. So so I'm going to hold my, my verdict until I can do that. I think this song is most definitely about LSD. Okay, and why do you think that? Well, listen to the lyrics. Okay, well, Shapes I just said I have drink. to do that. <laughs> Shapes in my drink like Christ. Oh, wow. Flowers on the wall. Yeah, I think they were probably pretty high when they were... This whole album, you just sit down and listen to the album. Come back to me in a few weeks and we'll talk about it again. I think you'll be like, yeah, that's okay. Sure what was going on. Okay. I mean, for whatever reason, I don't hear Cure fans talking about this one the way they talk about like the head on the door or, you know, some of their earlier stuff. This one just doesn't get mentioned. Well, the Caterpillar, I don't think is a well-liked song by Cure fans. Oh, but I like that one, though. And I think this is probably, I, I, I think if we sat down and put their albums, you know, from best to worst, this would probably come in last for most fans. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. Either that or 413 Dream, their last LP. Mm. So I like the album now. I think it's great. Now that I've gotten much older and I can realize what they what was going on with them at the time, it's an okay album. Okay. Very psychedelic. And speaking of psychedelic, our next song, Trey, is by the Psychedelic Furs. I didn't even realize I was doing that. Yeah, it must have been subliminal. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so the song I chose next is The Ghost in You. A man in my shoes runs a light and all the papers lie tonight but
I had no idea this band existed at this point in time. I picked them up here and there again on MTV, you know, the John Hughes movie soundtracks and a few other, you know, a few other things. But and I, I've seen them live a few times. And this one, you know, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is my favorite song by the Psychedelic Furs. It's just such a beautiful song. You know, inside you, the time moves and she don't fade. Is So, I mean there's no no more beautiful compliment that i think that you can pay somebody you know it's not about physical beauty it's about you know your inner spirit and your inner strength right the ghost in you i don't know what do you think i totally see that that's wow it's it's a really really beautiful love song it really is i wouldn't hear these guys until uh pretty and pink came out okay well, for the, the second time, Pretty in Pink came out, which I didn't have no idea of at the time. Okay. Well, I can tell you the first song I ever heard by them was Love My Way. What year was that? That's a good question. Let's find out. Boy, what did we ever do without Google? No, no kidding. Love My Way was 82. Wow. Yeah. No, no clue who they were at that in 82. And again, I think this speaks to the influence of MTV. How areas that had MTV, like my area, mm -hmm. we were being exposed to a lot of these new artists where areas like you, you were still getting stuff like through the radio or through night flight, right. through, you know, other evening kind of video shows. Mm -hmm. Radio 1990 was another one. Yeah. All right. So tell us about your next choice, Trey. The Reflex by Duran Duran. Now, see, I hate the album version of this song. I think most people do. The single version was remixed by Nile Rodgers of Chic. Yes, and it's a one of their best songs. Absolutely. And it's really telling that he heard something in that that nobody else heard. That album version, he heard that, and he's like, okay, there's this kind of underlying groove here that we need to bring forward. You know, that da-na-na-na. You know, we have to bring that forward. We need to bring John's bass forward. We mm -hmm. need to remix it a little bit and make give it a little bit more funk. You know, the only thing to me with the album version is that intro. The intro always annoyed me. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it's it's slow and draggy. Yeah, it's just it seems out of place with the rest of the song. So it was absolutely brilliant that they decided to bring Nile Rodgers on to do this. And and Sheik has always been cited as one of Duran Duran's early influences. So being able to work with Nile, yeah. it must have been a dream come true for them. And the reason they brought Nile Rodgers on is because they had heard what he did for In Excess for the single Original Sin. There you go. 
which Nile Rodgers produced, and that became in excess's first international number one hit. So that's that's what led them to bring Nile Rodgers on. And then later on, Nile actually would play with the band on their album Notorious and, you know, a few other songs after that. So this was a the start of, I think, a very fruitful collaboration. But you picked this song. So tell us about why you picked it. This released just after I'd seen them live in Columbia, South Carolina, March of 84. And this video showcased their live show, which was. I think we're going to do an episode later on. Rob be able to go more into detail on that show, but it was phenomenal. And the video was phenomenal. I remember people asking me, did they have water coming out of the video screen? <laughs> no, no, was, that was I, a special effect. I was like, no, and they actually didn't play this version of the song either. Yeah. It was, the, the, they did play the remix version, but the intro and all was very different, I guess, because they couldn't do that live. Well, again, on MTV... They used to have something called the Friday Night Video Fights. I remember hearing about that. Where they would put two videos up and viewers could call in and then, you know, determine who the winner was for the week. And I remember for several weeks, this was the winner on Friday nights. And I just remember the first time I saw the video and I was just completely entranced. I could not take my eyes off the screen. You know, all of the, the different uh animations which of course you know there's kind of an underlying s&m theme or a bondage theme which i guess you know little Lori didn't quite catch on to oh me either i'm clueless yeah and and the video the video was part of arena long form video arena yes they did a a full length it was Mm -hmm. a concert video but it had like a sci-fi plot and they actually brought in the actor from the movie Barbarella, who played Durand Durand, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the chief bad guy in the movie. And they did this whole weird sci-fi plot around it. And some of the scenes that you're seeing are from that weird sci-fi plot of the film. They were playing some of that footage on the screen behind them. Yes. So they had already worked on that. I don't know, worked on it some before actually starting the tour. I think this is the first video that Duran Duran did that's actually showing them in a live performance. I mean, granted, it's not live live because it's lip sync, it's dubbed in, but it's the first time that you can actually see how they're interacting with the audience, how the audience is receiving them. And there's an energy to it that we didn't see in the other videos because there wasn't that audience interaction. And there is this gal in the video in the audience and she's got these beautiful lace gloves mm-hmm. and she's got tears pouring from her eyes. And I thought to myself, my gosh, that's me. You know, that's how how their music affects me. And if I were to see them live, that's how I would have reacted. And that's exactly how the concert I saw was like. There were so many chicks with tears in her eyes and just it, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I think that the video was very notable for catching that kind of <laughs> atmosphere and kind of vibe. So, you know, this came out two, three weeks after I saw him. So I thought for the longest time, that was the concert I was at. Oh. I was like, how did they do this? You know, what in the world? I believe it's Toronto, right? In some San Diego, possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was over the moon with this video. Like, oh, I was at that. Excellent song, excellent video, excellent choice. I think that covers that one. Oh, you know, I had the single that folded out into a poster. Did you have that? 
No, I don't think uh, I, I, I don't think I did. I had I had the seven and the Ragged Tiger album, but I don't think I had the same. Oh, I had everything. I had all the 45s and 12 inches and I, that was nuts. Well, you had a disposable income. I was still saving my dollars from my allowance. Not so. quite yet. Well, I was only 14. I had very cool parents is what I had. Ah, okay. All right. Well, Trey, as you know, Duran Duran is one of my all-time top favorite bands. The next one is another of my all-time top favorite bands, and that is Madness. And the song that I've chosen is my favorite Madness song ever recorded, and that is One Better Day. I don't believe I know this one. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Suggs and Mark Bedford, who's the bassist. And it was really kind of inspired, I think, by uh, some of the homeless people that they would see on the street. There's a mention in the song of something called Arlington House, which was actually a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. But it's just such a beautiful, beautiful lyric. Walking around, you sometimes hear the sunshine beating down in time with the rhythm of your shoes. And it's just such a beautiful melody. Mike Barson's, um, uh, not the xylophone. What's the other one that's like the xylophone? I can't think what it's called. The vibraphone? Yes, thank you, the vibraphone. It's just, oh, so beautiful. So this is absolutely, bar none, my favorite Madness song of all time. And that's saying a lot because I love Madness. Yeah, they're one of your, pretty much your favorite band, one of them. Yes, you know, the thing with Madness is, is I knew him, I knew Your House and One Step Beyond from previously in the 80s. And in 86, when I kind of started getting out in the world more and I started hanging out with punk rockers, they were all really into Madness. And I was like, Madness? Because I, I didn't know all the connections there. I didn't know, you know, and I was like, why do you guys like Madness? So yeah. they were kind of giggling at me. Like, you, you, the new guy here. Huh. Interesting because I, I very hard pressed to, to find anybody around here until very recently that had ever heard of them. Really? Yeah. No. I, so can I give a little plug to my other podcast trade? Of course. Mind? Not at okay. all. Uh, I'm also the co-host of a podcast called Stateside Madness Official, and it is a podcast dedicated solely to madness and their adjacent bands. How many episodes are you guys on now? Uh, 60. Wow. 60 episodes. Yeah. Amazing. So, 
you know, you know, I'm amazed that we could find 60 episodes to talk about madness. Absolutely. So uh, give us a listen. Check us out if you're into madness. We even had an episode about the Go-Go's because, as I mentioned earlier, madness gave the Go-Go's really their first shot. They uh, played with them uh, in California at the Whiskey A Go-Go and invited them onto their UK tour. And that was the girls' first overseas tour. And they recorded their first single on Stiff Records while they were overseas. And that was, of course, We Got the Beat. And, of course, that's where uh, Jane met Terry Hall that we were talking about earlier. So all these bands are, like, interconnected. It's really interesting to me to see all the the connections between them. All righty. So up next is Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And I have... Probably the world's most interesting story about Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Well, let's hear the song first. Okay. Everybody knows this song. If you do not know this song, you were not alive in the 80s. And speaking of songs, it completely went right over my head until I was much older. I think it went over just about everybody's head. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great band. This was a great album. I don't think anything they did past this was that this is the mere definition of a one hit wonder, I'd say. It's, It's possible. I don't think Two Tribes went very high on the charts. That was their other big single. I think they were much bigger in Europe than they ever were here. They got a lot of play here in the U.S. at gay clubs and gay bars. They're they're really, really iconic in the gay community. You know, I brought the 45 with that picture on it. Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. Well, go go look it up after after we're off air. My mom saw it and ripped it up. Is it naughty? It's not terribly naughty, but it's it's S&M-ish. Okay. Well, I do remember everybody wearing those white t-shirts with the black letters. Mm-hmm. Frankie says relax. Oh, yeah. Every, I didn't have one. Everybody and their brother did though. Yeah. So tell us your Frankie story. I'm dying to hear. Late winter of 99. A local bar started advertising. They had Frankie goes to Hollywood coming and performing there. And I was like, what? You know, who? Who? And uh, it seemed very strange to me, and it turns out it was. And uh, so some girls I worked with wanted to go. They were kind of getting into the old... This was around the time of the Wedding Singer movie being popular and all, and they wanted to go, so I went. And we got there, and the first thing I noticed was the gear on the stage wasn't exactly professional gear. Hmm. It was nice stuff, but it wasn't something a band that had sold a million copies of a single would have. It was sort of mid-level synthesizers and 
nice but cheaper guitars, you know, things like that. And I was like, that's, and they fall on hard times. When they came out and started playing, I quickly noticed that this was not indeed Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And yeah, it wasn't, wasn't Holly Johnson? Nobody in the band was ever in Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It's, I later found out that somebody was claiming to be the cousin of, like, the drummer, something along that lines. But after they played their first song and the singer, singer started speaking, he didn't have a British accent either. And I was like, this, this, this what is going on here? And so they only played about 10 songs and they didn't play them very well. Okay, so what happened? Well, they came out and they started hanging out in the bar afterwards. And I, I didn't really say anything to them about me realizing they aren't. Everybody else there thought I was off my rocker. They thought, no, this is Frankie Goes to Hollywood and you are absolutely crazy. And uh-uh. even somebody that worked at the bar was like, well, we talked to their manager. And I'm like, I'm telling you, this is not Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But I talked to the guys in the band and I could quickly see they these people weren't who they were claiming they are. Okay. So any idea who they really were? I they mean, were... you mentioned cousin of the drummer, but... Well, apparently they had gotten booked with a flock of seagulls and Mike Score quickly realized the same thing I did too that these people aren't who they're claiming to be they're not even from England Mike, I think Mike had been friendly with uh, Holly Johnson in the late 70s, early 80s so he knew that guy, he was like you you aren't, you know, you're full of it that blows my mind I mean, you are much calmer than I am I would have been getting up in the guy's face I would have been like, you are a fucking imposter I, I had no idea how to react to it. I, yeah. They weren't British. They weren't playing the songs right at all. They, the synthesizer sounds were, it was like, you know, back in the eighties, they had like those, the hits factory sings the hits type of thing. That's what it sounded like. I was like, what in the hell? What on earth? I, I, I didn't know what to do. It yeah. turns out they were based in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> not, not Birmingham, UK, Birmingham, Alabama. Exactly. Okay. Had, All right. This is actually, uh, elements of this are on their wiki, on Frankie Goes to Hollywood's wiki page. And uh, they, they had gone around the South for about six months there in 1999, claiming they were Frankie Goes to Hollywood and fooled quite a many people. Wow. And uh, so I saw that. And, so was there ever any legal action taken against them, I wonder? I believe so. There's very little about it out there on the web. All I can find is that Mike Score, you know, was the one that really got people realizing these people were full of shit and they were basically ripping people off. Oh, so you said it is It is on the Wikipedia page. Right. The imposter band was led by an American using the stage name Davy Johnson, who alternately claimed he was Holly Johnson's brother and had performed as an uncredited session musician mm-hmm. on Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. There it is. The members of the actual band and their producer, Trevor Horn, refuted both claims. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mike Scores mentioned in here too. Mm-hmm. After Holly Johnson contacted the trade magazine Polestar to confirm the American-based act was unauthorized, the imposter band was dropped by a booking agent but continue to be booked by small clubs throughout the United States. And I'm not sure if this Mike score thing had happened before or after I saw them. I don't know. Cause there's, okay. there's not much out there, but I started talking to them after the show. And I, I, like I said earlier, I didn't say I was onto their secret, but 
I think they were kind of starting to realize I knew they weren't who they said they were either because they started getting real short with me. But they were all had southern accents and where I was like. Well, and I mean, we all grew up watching them on MTV. I mean, we kind of know what the key players look like, you know? That thought went through my head, but I also went, you know, this is almost 20 years later. I mean, people age. That's true. That's true. Wow. And this is also at the time of Holly Johnson. I don't think he was performing because he has AIDS. Right, right. And I think he was a little ill at this period in time, and I was aware of that. What a story, Trey. My goodness. Yeah, there's a story for you, isn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, the last song of our episode, I had to pick something from Purple Rain, right? The 1984 Prince film that was everywhere. And uh, I chose the song Computer Blue. Great song. doesn't get as much notice as a lot of the the other singles and stuff like that i love it i love the way it's put together the different segments there's like a synth segment there's like a guitar segment and i just gotta say dr fink i love dr fink okay he's the the keyboardist slash synth player he's so freaking cool man he is he's a cool guy and i associate this song with him this song it's almost metal Especially in the live version in the movie, they're just, it's great. It's fantastic. Maybe it was what Prince thought heavy metal should sound like. Well, Prince always did have kind of a hard rock and roll guitar edge to things anyway. He did, but this just the, it's not just the guitars in the song. It's everything about it just hits so hard. The beginning, though, which unfortunately I had to cut out for the song for the Mm -hmm. episode because we're limited for how much time of the song we can play. But the beginning, Wendy. Yes, Lisa. Mm -hmm. The water warm enough. Yes, Lisa. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I get the chills every time I hear that. I actually love this album. I love the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, you saw my Facebook post a few weeks ago, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I found out the movie was on uh, Tubi. I hadn't seen it in quite some time. I watched it. I just, you know, this is one of those things that was so big about 1984. And Prince was, he had had success previously, but this really put him over the edge. This album, a movie. And, you know, this is probably the greatest rock and roll movie ever made, in my opinion. I'd agree with you. I don't think think anybody's ever going to touch this. And the thing is, you know, you watch it now and it's a little cheesy and hokey, but it's, it's just so well put together. I didn't get to see it till it came on HBO. My parents got me the soundtrack album. I guess it would have been Christmas of 84. And I loved it. 
Well, I, I, you know what? I got the soundtrack for Christmas that year, too. And, of course, you know, we talked in a previous episode about how I was too young to see rated R movies, so I was never allowed to see this. So I think I finally saw it maybe about 10 years ago for the first time. Oh, and it, it's good for what it is. There's, you know, very good concert footage. I got to tell you, Morris Day steals every scene that he is in. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. He's one of the best parts of the movie. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it, it's it's definitely something that I think all, all music fans need to see at least once. Fantastic film. I, like I said, I caught it on HBO about a year later when they ran. I probably watched it 20 times. I think my mom watched it like 20 times on HBO, too. I just loved it. I, got, I wasn't allowed. I, well, I don't think my parents knew I was watching it. Or, well, they, were <laughs> there. they got me the record. They, you know, I don't know. My, I had cool parents for the most part. Yeah. I'd say, you know, I can't stand when doves cry anymore. Really? Well, because you know, that that's the only one they play. There's no bass to it. Yeah. Then, yeah. It's notable for that. All right. Well, Trey, I think this brings us to summer of 84 and this is a good stopping point for us all righty so we'll be back in two weeks and we'll pick up with uh the second half of 1984 and more musical goodness indeed we will all right so thank you again for listening we'll uh we'll be back in the new year so goodbye from me goodbye from trey and everybody have a fantastic new year's and And stay safe. safe out there yeah 